You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Well, any of you that have ever read through your Bible, including the book of 1 Corinthians and read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, have probably read the first 16 verses of the chapter and scratched your head and wondered, what in the world? I'm sure some of you ladies have read the verses and thought, should I be wearing something over my head when I come to church? (laughs) And some of you men have thought, well, I guess here's the scriptural text, proof text for taking our hats off when we pray. But all of that we will be looking at this morning in this very interesting set of verses that I have to be honest with you guys, I'm actually so thankful that Pastor Damien was here last week teaching in our church because it gave me an extra week to study this passage. A very, very difficult text before us. And the reason for this is that it's because Paul is assuming things that the Corinthian believers know about that we just have no idea about. We cannot be 100% sure what was exactly taking place. So I have uh, really slaved over my studies this week trying to put this together. Many of you will probably find this this study a bit boring because it is more on the scholarly or studious side, I would say. Uh, But I will try to, of course, make some practical application points for us. So if you've got your outlines, please follow along with me. The title is Boys and Girls 101 because when you boil it down, it's really just coming down to the issue of gender distinction, guys. Distinction between men and women in the worship service and, and, and as a result in all of life. So, uh, you know, it, and in that sense, there is some good application for us today because we do live in a society where gender distinction is uh, somewhat uh, surprisingly in question. Uh, it's becoming something that's relevant, if I might say, uh, uh, according to however you know an individual may or may not feel about their sexual identity. So, all of that being said, we can find some great application through this passage in that. But I'd like you to turn over to Luke chapter 20 uh, to begin this morning. Hold your place in 1 Corinthians 11. Turn over to Luke chapter 20, verse 34. And I want to start us off with the teaching, the biblical teaching from Jesus Christ that seems to have been twisted at the church in Corinth. And this is where uh, much of the problem seems to lie. So Luke chapter 20, verses 34 to 36, and the, the verses will be on the main screen here as well. You can read it there if you want. It says, Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So this is the teaching of Jesus Christ as he taught his disciples there in, 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 the, uh, uh, in Luke. And, and this, 
This seems to be what the Corinthian church seized upon. It seems that Paul had taught something similar to this, or perhaps the very words of Christ. They're in the church, teaching it to the church, and they took this doctrine after Paul was gone and kind of twisted it a little bit. And they carried things a little bit too far. And that's why Paul is writing the issue, these verses here in chapter 11 to correct the issue. Now let me explain the problem to you this morning. The problem was that there were these women in the church of Corinth. Uh, many commentators have titled them as eschatological women. Women who were living in the future as if they were already in the future. They're resurrected bodies, only they were living that way now. And that's why the commentators call them eschatological women. Eschatolo- eschatology is the study of future events in times. And so that's what this is referring to, these women in the church that thought they were already, you know, kind of living in a, in a resurrected state, if you will. Uh, we might also call them hyper-spiritual women. Okay, the, they, they were part of the problem there in Corinth. They had a lot of arrogant pride, and, and they were teaching things in the church or saying things and living in a certain way. What were those things? Well, they were teaching that those who are spiritual... Spiritual are above the earthly existence of others. They taught that marriage belongs to this temporary life and will soon pass away. And so because they said that, they were trying to put pressure on others to dissolve their marriages and to abstain from getting married if they were, if they were single people in the church. It seems also that they thought of themselves as being like the angels, okay? These women thought, hey, we're already like the angels now in our resurrected state. And, and, and according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, they thought that they were actually speaking in the tongues of angels, confusing the spiritual gift of the Holy Spirit as speaking in tongues of angels there. And, and so they thought, hey, we're already speaking like the angels, we must be like them. And then there, they also had a spiritualized view that was causing some sort of a breakdown in the distinction between male and female in the public worship service. Okay? Let me repeat that. They had a spiritualized view that was causing a breakdown in the distinction between male and female in the public worship service. We don't know exactly what that was, okay? We have nothing that, that tells us definitively what the issue is. We just know that this was the issue that was going on. Now, I want to give you guys a little bit of context here. Uh, I want to uh, read to you Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28, because this tells us a little bit about the mentality within the early church, the Pauline era churches. He says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So it seems that Paul taught in the churches that he planted that Jesus Christ tears down every wall, every barrier, every distinction in the sense that Jesus Christ equals the playing field for all. Whether you're grew, Jew, Greek, sorry, <laughs> grew, that's a... Uh, that's a cartoon figure. Uh, whether you're Jew, whether you're Greek, whether you're male, female, that is, uh, that's not the issue. All are sinners in Christ that are redeemed by the grace of God. Amen? And so because of that, because of that, it seems that there were some women in the Corinthian church who took the idea of this freedom in Christ 
and being a new creation in Christ to a whole new level. And because of their pride and their arrogance, they were disrupting the church service in several different ways. Now, instead of abiding, one of these ways was by, instead of abiding by certain customs and traditions that Paul thought were appropriate, because they maintained the distinction between the sexes, these Corinthian women were threatening to disrupt the healthy distinctions between men and women in the Lord. And so Paul now turns to address these issues. His main point in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 11 is that because men and women are equally reliant on each other, we need to keep a distinction between the sexes. Okay, let me repeat that. Because men and women are equally reliant on each other, we need to keep a distinction between the sexes. Now, he sets out to prove this by giving three different arguments. First, an argument from shame. Second, an argument from creation. And thirdly, an argument from decency, uh, which is also related to shame. But let's start off in verses 1 through 6 with an argument from shame. Read verse 1 with me. Paul says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. This verse really belongs in chapter 10. It should be the final thought of chapter 10, but it is here, it's been divided here uh, in most Bibles into 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but it starts off with an exhortation, and when you think about this exhortation, it sure takes a special kind of a person to make this statement. Somebody with a clear conscience has to make this kind of a statement. (laughs) Can you imagine telling everybody you meet, hey, imitate my life. Just as I imitate Christ. Quite a statement. Paul here calling on the Corinthian believers, and by implication on you and me, to follow his example. Did you know that a living example is really one of the best ways that you and I learn? In fact, if you are a parent here today, I can guarantee you that your children are not necessarily going to do what you say They're going to do what you do. You see, they're learning from your example. doesn't matter what you say to them. If you're not living out what you say, hey, they're going to catch a different teaching from you. The late pastor Chuck, Chuck Smith, the founder of the Calvary Chapel movement, he had this kind of an exemplary life. He was a man who could say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. The reason that we know this is because when we consider some of the pastors who were discipled under Pastor Chuck Smith, pastors like Mike McIntosh, Greg Laurie, Raul Reese, these are just a few of the men. We could go on, John Corson and Skip Heisig, uh, and on and on. There are many, many, many men who were mentored by Pastor Chuck who are still impacting our world today in huge ways. All because Pastor Chuck lived the kind of exemplary life that said, hey, you can imitate me just as I imitate my Lord and Savior. When you think about it, guys, every believer here needs both someone to imitate and also someone to be an example for. I would ask you that question today. Who is your example? Who is your example in life? Who are you patterning your life after? And secondly, who are you being an example to? Your little brother? 
Your little sister, a nephew, a niece? Is there a grandchild in your life? Hey, I remember my brother. He's five years younger than me. I remember when I left to go to the Marine Corps, he was just getting to the age where he was starting to play some sports and get into high school. And I remember coming back on vacation and talking with my brother and finding out that, you know, he was trying out for the same positions that I was playing in football. And, and that was his dream. And the coaches were like, no, you should be a tight end. And he was like, no, I want to be a running back and a linebacker just like my brother. And he tried to get my jersey number and everything like that. And I, I realized at that point in time, I was like, whoa, what's, what's going on here? He, he wants to be like me. And that was a sobering moment for me in my life as a young man, realizing that, wow, I didn't realize my brother was looking up to me in that way. Hey, guys, I guarantee you there's somebody in your life that's looking up to you this morning. You don't realize it, perhaps. You don't realize the weight of your example. But you are being an example to somebody, and you may not even know it. But listen, this is why we at Calvary Chapel Parish, we want you guys and are encouraging you guys to be meeting in groups of three or four over the summer months to continue the spirit of discipleship, going through one of these recommended books together. Why do we want you to do that? Because through doing that, you are living the Christian life, which is a life of relationship and fellowship that results in transformation and life change. Hey guys, I don't know about you guys, but I have things I want to change about me. There are things that I'm working on in my character, in my life, and I'm not going to get there without transformation, life change. And that happens through forming relationships, through being mentored, through desiring to learn, and through desiring to teach others. So guys, that's what it's all about. Paul invites us, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Then he begins to address the problems in verse 2 and 3 the problems that the Corinthians were having in their worship services. And he starts off by giving a little bit of encouragement, and then he couples that together with a metaphor. He says in verse 2, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. The word now in verse 2 is our clue that Paul is changing the subject. He's moving on from Christian liberty, which was addressed in chapters 8 through 10. And now he's going to be looking at another set of problems there in the church that were related to the worship service. And those issues are in order. Number one, maintaining proper gender distinction in worship. Number two, the Lord's Supper being taken in a manner that was not dignified or it was being abused. And number three, abusing the gifts of the Holy Spirit, especially speaking in tongues. So chapters 11 through 14 are going to be dealing with those three issues. Of course, this morning we're just looking at the first one, maintaining proper gender distinction in worship. Paul launches into that issue in verse 3. He gives a metaphor that is going to illustrate the relationships between a man and a woman. He says, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. All right, here we get to the nitty-gritty, right? Here's the verse where everybody's just waiting for me to just blast you women and tell you you've got to be subject to men and all. Well, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Let's study the text. This is a verse that is often used out of context, 
In fact, I have to admit that as I studied this passage this week myself, I realized I've used this verse out of context. This verse is often thought to be a proof text for the authority of a man, and it is most often used by preachers to show the subordination of women to the authority of a man. But that is not Paul's point here. Christianity does not teach in the, the general submission of all women to all men, okay? That is, not, that is not biblical teaching. Now, the Bible does talk about the family unit. You can see those scriptures in Ephesians chapter 5 and study it there. You, and the Bible also addresses the role of men and women in the church as far as church leadership positionings go. Pastoral ministry, pastors specifically, in Second or First Timothy chapter two, the Bible does address those things. But this passage in First Corinthians chapter eleven is not a passage that is teaching the subjection or subordination of women and the authority of a man. That's not Paul's point in writing this. And the key to understanding this is twofold. The very first thing that you need to understand is the context. I've told you guys this before. When you inductively study the Bible, it's all about context. Context is king. In fact, let me say this. Context, context, context. It's all about the context. In this passage, Paul is not making an argument for the authority of men over women. What he is actually doing is very mildly arguing against the Corinthian women's forsaking of a custom that was somehow affecting the relationship between a man and a woman by creating confusion and gender distinction. The second key to understanding this text is the Greek word for head. Now, in English, we read that word head and we think automatically, well, hey, that's the boss. The head is the boss. And we immediately think of hierarchy. In the Greek language, the word for head is kephali. Kephali, and that word does not mean authority, as many think it does, especially we who speak English. The word kephali in the Greek language means source, and it refers to the origin of the relationship, not the authority invested in the relationship. So there's, that, that's the second key to understanding this passage. Kephali, or head, it doesn't mean boss. It doesn't mean authority over. It means source or origin of. So there's one other very important fact that we need to know if we're going to understand this verse and thus this passage. Paul is using the word head in verse 3 in a metaphorical way. The metaphor is referring to the relationships between man, Christ, woman, man, and Christ, God. Those are the three relationships that Paul is using the word head as a metaphor in. To put it simply, the metaphor states that the source or the origin of life for every believing man is Jesus Christ. The source or origin of life for every woman is man. And this, of course, refers to the very first man, Adam, in creation. Paul will reference creation all throughout this passage. And the source of the origin of the incarnation of Jesus Christ is, of course, God the Father. So Paul is using this metaphor in order to set up his argument. He's saying that they are be bringing dishonor to their metaphorical head. That's the capital letters there. 
and also their own head, literally, the small lowercase letters head. So they were doing this in verse 4 through 6. Read with me in verse 4. Paul says, Every man who prays, or every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. So Paul starts out by addressing the men. He begins addressing a hypothetical situation concerning the man. You can tell by Paul's language, the, or the, the, the syntax of the text, this was not actually happening. This is just a hypothetical situation he's proposing. He says, if a man were to have a covering on his literal head while praying or prophesying in church, this would cause shame or dishonor to his relationship with his metaphorical head, Jesus Christ. We don't know why that is. We're not told why. Paul simply makes a hypothetical statement. He doesn't feel it's important to go into details. Then he moves on and addresses the women because the women are at the root of the issue. This is where the problem really was. There was no hypothetical situation. This was happening with the women. He says, But every woman, in verse 5, who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. Now, it seems from this verse that the eschatological women, or those hyper-spiritual women, if you will, they were arguing against a customary practice which concerned the way they dressed in the church service. The covering that Paul is mentioning here is not a veil. Some Bibles have incorrectly inserted that word, veil. It is not in the Greek text. So this, we don't know exactly what this is. We know it's not a veil, like as is seen in Muslim cultures today, because that was not around in the time period in Corinth. It didn't exist in their culture at that time. So it is more likely a piece of clothing, possibly connected to their robe that they would pull up over their heads at certain times to shade the head. Or it could have been something like a shawl that they would just wear when they came to church. But let me stress this to you. There is not enough historical evidence to know exactly what Paul is talking about. Okay? Some people have made things up and, and, and talked as if this was certain. Listen, when you study this passage as long as I have, you will realize no one can be absolutely decided as to what, this is, what was going on, what was being worn or what was not being worn, if he's talking about long hair or not. Okay? Now, some people do think that he's talking about long hair, the woman's covering is a long hair. But, but again, if that is what Paul meant, he could have so simply just said, I'm talking about long hair, guys. <laughs> but he didn't do that. So it's, it's, it's really hard to understand. I just have to admit that to you. In, in verse 6, Paul drives his point home now. He uses the motive of public shame or embarrassment to motivate these women. He says, For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. That means cut her hair short like a man. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, then let her be covered. Now, shorn means, again, like, think think flat top, okay, ladies? Think flat top, okay? Uh, A manly style of a haircut, Paul is, is saying, listen, ladies, it, it's, it's just as shameful for you to shave your heads or wear it like a man as, as it would be to not do, carry out this customary tradition within the church service. So, so there are thousands, guys, of paintings and drawings and sculptures from the time period that this letter was written in that show us, that help us to realize that in Greco-Roman culture, 
Men had short hair and women had long hair. That's the way it was, especially there in Corinth, the Greco-Roman culture. So in this particular culture there in Corinth, at the time of Paul's letter, it would have been shameful for the men or for the women to have their hair cut in the style of a man. And it would have been equally shameful and out of place for them to shave their heads. Paul's making the argument that these Christian women should not go against the clearly established customs of their culture because it was in some way dishonoring the relationship to men in the church. And it also dishonored themselves. Now he gives a second argument in verses 7 through 12, an argument from creation. If you're following along on your outline there, his first point is about the uniqueness of man and woman. Look at verse 7. He says, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. We need to pause here for a moment. Sometimes people get carried away at this. They, they get, hey, they think, hey, Paul's saying that woman is not made in the image of God. That is not true. Paul is not saying that at all. We need to understand what Paul's trying to say with this argument. In order to do that, we have to zero in on that word glory in verse 7. The word glory is being used here in the sense of praise and honor. So Paul is saying that man was created to the praise and honor of God. And in that same way, woman was created from the first man, Adam, from his side, in order to complement and complete him. And in that sense, she is to the praise and the honor of man. She is like him, but with very notable distinctions, which God designed to make a man and woman mutually dependent on each other. Therefore, the woman is, in that sense, again, to the praise and the honor. She's the glory of man. Please notice here, Paul is not saying that a woman is not made in God's image. He carefully avoids saying that. Instead, he is saying that because the woman has, was made from the man, she's his glory. Now, he's pointing this out so that the Corinthian believers will maintain a distinction between the sexes. And in doing so, they will honor the relationship that God wants them to have between each other. He continues in verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, For man is not from woman, but woman from man, nor was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Now this is how we know that Paul is not trying to establish man as the authority over the woman. He is very carefully pointing out the equality here between the sexes. The man is the source of origin for woman because Eve, the very first woman, came from the very first man, Adam's side. But every man who has come into the world since then has done so through the womb of a woman. Thus, men and women are reliant upon one another. The distinction between the sexes is important. And it is what allows the most beautiful relationships on earth to exist and to thrive. Think about it for a moment. You know, yesterday at our family devotions after dinner, we were sitting around the table and we read through Josh McDowell's family devotional book for June 2nd. Great book, by the way. Love it. But it was about a family who had a teenager who was having a birthday. And the mom and dad decided that on their teenager's birthday, they were going to get a purity ring for their child. 
And that purity ring, they talked to that child about it in the devotional, about it symbolized a desire to remain faithful and to save themselves for their future spouse one day. And they gave it to their child, and, and they were just beaming. They were so happy, and they, they were like thanking their parents for that gift. And uh, when we finished the, the reading, it's only it's a short reading, takes about five minutes or so. I finished it up, and my six-year-old son was sitting on my lap, and he turned around, and he looked at me, and he said, hmm, I don't get it. And, and I thought to myself, exactly, you know, it, you're not going to get it at your age, right? But my wife and I, we sure got it. And my 13-year-old daughter, or my, my soon-to-be 13-year-old daughter who was sitting at the table, she got it. And she was looking at us like, hey, mom, hey, dad, am I going to get a purity ring? You know? And, and I was, you know, of course, my head was full of what I'm going to be teaching today. And so I was thinking, what a beautiful relationship it is, father and daughter, and, and between all my sons and their mother. And when I think about my relationships with my sisters, I've got three of them, and we talk and text on the phone regularly. And, and my relationship with my mother, the most, some of the most beautiful relationships among human beings are these relationships between male and female. And so it's important that we protect the distinctions because these relationships become endangered and they become ruined if there's no distinction between man and woman, especially in the worship of our Creator God who made us this way. He designed us this way. And so in verse 10, Paul continues, he says, For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Okay, stop right here. We thought we were through the difficult parts. No, we're not. Verse 10 This is where Paul's argument drifts astray. This is one of the most difficult verses to understand in the whole passage. Part of the problem is that Bible translations have inserted things that make it harder to understand. For example, the RSV. They use the word veil here in place of symbol of authority. Again, that word does not exist in the Greek text. It is is the wrong way to translate the verse. The The New King James Version, which I just read to you, It has the word symbol there. But if you look closely, that word is in italics. And that's because that word is not in the original Greek text. So what Paul is saying here, if you were just to read the original Greek text, he says something like this. The woman ought to have authority over her own head. Which, you know, seems to fly in the face of the whole argument he's just been making. But what he's saying here, and he's saying, listen, the woman ought to have authority over her own head. Now, the point that he's making is not that a woman should be subject to a man, but rather she should be free to have her own authority to pray and prophesy just like the men, while at the same time maintaining or keeping herself distinct from the male sex. Okay? And the reason that Paul gives for this is simply because of the angels. Now, again, at this point, this is where Bible scholars, scholars start uh, doing cartwheels, okay? I mean, we don't know what this means. Serious Bible scholars have admitted there's no way of knowing for sure what Paul means when he's here in verse 10. Um, he, he, they think he could be referring to the idea that the angels are watching Christians and the church like a drama that's unfolding. The women are part of that drama, and uh, because they're new creatures in Christ, they needed to maintain a physical sign that showed they're distinct from the men while they prayed and prophesied. 
Uh, it could also refer to the problem that some of the women in Corinth had, which was thinking that they were already like the angels. And Paul wants to rein them back a little bit. He's saying, slow down. Uh, because of the angels, he's reminding them, listen, you're not in your resurrected state yet. But at the end of the day, guys, we just don't have enough absolute certainty here. So I'm going to move on. <laughs> Uh, the, the next point there is the mutual dependence of man and woman, verses 11 and 12. Paul says, nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman. But all things are from God. Let's pause here. So Paul again reminds us that men and women need each other. We are equally reliant on each other. And at the end of the day, we all come from God, and we're to live in such a way that honors God. Paul wraps up the problem with his third and final argument, which is an argument from decency, verse 13. And, and he begins with an analogy about the nature of things. Verse 13, he says, Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? This, this is, of course, a rhetorical question. Paul uses them all the time. He supposes them to already know that it is not proper for a woman to pray to God uh, without her, uh, w- or with her head uncovered in a public church service. But then he's going to use an argument from analogy to prove his point further in verse 14. He says, Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Listen. Once again, here are two more verses that have been used, unfortunately, as a sort of way to bludgeon young men and young women into getting a haircut or growing their hair long, depending on the situation. Oftentimes, you'll hear a preacher refer to Absalom. See, even nature shows us that men shouldn't have long hair. And they bring up the old Absalom story when he's riding through the forest on his horse and his hair gets tangled in a tree and whoop! He's hanging in the air there and, you know, by his long hair. And they're like, see, men shouldn't grow their hair. Guys, that is a very poor reason, uh, very poor reasoning uh, for bludgeoning a young man into cutting his hair. Listen, uh, Paul himself had long hair. Read Acts 18, verse 18. He had long hair while he was living in Corinth. Why? Because he took a vow to not cut his hair. And so he grew his hair long while he was in Corinth. So we know that he's not saying here that it's wrong in every case for men to have long hair. Uh, In in fact, really, we need to not take any of this stuff and make it into a rule that we all are to strive to follow. Okay, That would be to completely miss Paul's point. And it would be to uh, completely miss the point of Christianity, guys. Christianity is not about laws. It's not about rules. It's about Jesus. It's about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength. That's what the main point is. But Paul here is making this argument, and and, and we need to see it within its context. Remember what I said about context? Context, context, context. The argument that Paul is making here is about being or about something very specific within the cultural context of Corinth. It is not meant to be applied across every culture and all time. How do I know that? Because of the argument that Paul is making. Paul, when he says, when nature itself, or he talks about nature itself, 
He's, make, he's talking about the nature of things in their current culture and tradition. He's not talking about nature in the sense of creation. He's talking about the nature of things there in Corinth where they lived and where they were operating. He expects them to understand that whatever these Corinthian women were doing, it was totally outside of the accepted norms of their time. And it was not wise to do what they were doing because it was not natural. It was not according to the custom of the people that they were called to reach. Paul wraps it up in verse 16 with his final appeal. He says, But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Again, it's a little bit unclear what Paul means by saying this. Is he saying, you know what, if anybody wants to argue about it, just let it go. No, that is not what Paul is saying, okay? What he's saying here is that if any of the believers, specifically we should think these Corinthian hyper-spiritual women, if they want to argue with Paul about this, about this keeping the tradition that distinguishes between a male and female gender identity... That there's no other practice, he says. In other words, hey, we don't practice any other such thing than to do that. And, and, and neither do any of the other churches. All of the churches practice making a clear distinction between the men and the women. So the Corinthian church shouldn't do anything different, is what he's saying. However, again, it must be noted. Notice the language there in verse 16. We have to note that Paul stops way short of making an absolute command that would apply for all churches in all times. In fact, it is clear when you study the passage very closely that Paul is careful to not say anything that would be taken as a super firm or theological doctrine here. This is not an argument that needs to have, is being set up with strong doctrinal basis. Because in the grand scheme of things, Paul sees this as a relatively minor issue. How do I know that? Well, you wait till next week. When Paul begins to address the issue of the Lord's Supper and how that was being abused, hey, he's very passionate about it, and he will lay down some doctrinal truth in a passionate way. Paul is not establishing this as a command or some sort of uh, uh, law that we should be striving to follow. I want to close with this illustration Think of what we've talked about today as sort of a large cave. And that large cave has a small opening, somewhat like what we see here in the picture. And that opening is too small for you and I to get all the way inside of that cave. We can't get inside of that cave, and we can't just explore and see everything that is in there in plain sight. So what are we left to do? We're left to take a flashlight and to stand at that opening and to point the flashlight through the hole and we're trying to see whatever we can see with that beam of light. And if our flashlight happens to fall upon something, we can look at it and we can see it, but we don't see exactly what the rest of the picture is. Guys, that's, that's what this is like for us. We're reading a letter that is thousands of years old and it's addressing problems that we don't know all the details about because Paul, when he wrote it, he assumed that they did, but he didn't list them for us. And, and so it's a bit difficult for us to understand everything that's going on behind this letter. So we have to take what we can know for sure, and we have to apply it to our lives. 
And we use this passage and we put it against other passages in the Bible. And guess what we find? We find that God obviously uh, values women. Here, Paul had no problem with a woman praying and prophesying in church. So, so we have to take that into account. We add it to the bigger picture of everything that's going on. The last thing I'm going to leave you with this morning is some practical application points. Number one, gender identity ultimately comes from God. It shouldn't be something that we try to change or confuse by the way that we dress or act. Whether God made you a man or a woman, hey, God wants you to rejoice in that and to seek to please God in that and to honor the relationships between men and women that God has obviously created for a reason. Second point of application is that God has created both men and women to be reliant upon each other. And so rather than thinking that one sex is superior and one is inferior, as some uh, have a problem of doing, hey, we need to work together for God's purposes. Just lay that aside, guys. It's not about that. Now, has God established roles? Yes, I talked about that. You can go to Ephesians chapter 5 and study about that role. You can go to First uh, Timothy chapter 2 and study about the role within a church that God has laid out. But, but, but listen, here... These are the practical application points. And the last one is this. We should not take this, or this is not meant to be taken as a rule or law, a rule of law for all churches in all times. The issue is not whether or not you wear a head covering if you're a woman who prays in church. The principle or the truth that is at stake here has to do with confusing the differences between men and women and thus dishonoring the God-established relationship between the sexes. Let's pray.